Good morning. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. Special welcome if you are brand new or checking us out this morning. We're really glad uh, to have you. The past year and a half, we have been in a study in the book of Matthew. Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples, and he wrote about what he saw. And today, we're going to be in uh, chapter 21. We've been titling this part of Matthew, Declaring and Demonstrating the Gospel of the Kingdom. Declaring through words, through Jesus' teaching and preaching and parables, as well as demonstrate, uh, through his demonstration, through all different kinds of things like healings and miracles, the gospel or the good news of the kingdom, the good news that the king has finally arrived, that Jesus is the great king to come and save and rescue his people. Today in our passage, we're going to see both of those. We're going to see Jesus declaring the good news of his kingdom. We're also going to see it demonstrated in his actions, and in his healings. So just a few days ago, I was in the car uh, listening to a radio show, and uh, the DJ had a guest on it, Mark Rosen. Some of you might know him. He's a, a person that, that does sports on Care 11, CBS, something like that. And uh, the DJ asked Mark Rosen, they said, what is your favorite concert that you've ever been to? And he's, you know, he's worked in uh, the news and the media, so he's been to a lot of great concerts. A lot of great concerts. And he's, you know, been in the industry for, for decades. And so he's been to a lot of great ones. And the, the DJ was asking, what, what's the best concert you've ever been to? And so that got me thinking, what would I say to that question? What, what would be the best concert that I have ever been to? So what about you guys? Best concert ever. Who's brave enough to shout out? You too? 311? Skillet. Nice. Nice. So, so I was thinking, I was thinking, what would I answer to that question? What, what would be uh, the best concert I've ever been to? Uh, and I thought it's probably one that I took my wife to about, about a year ago. Uh, it's an artist by the name of Regina Spector, and she's, she's got a fantastic voice. She's a great singer-songwriter. And uh, we saw her in concert at the State Theater in downtown Minneapolis, and it was probably... Uh, the best show, the best concert, best uh, experience, musical experience that, that we've ever had. And uh, we actually had pretty good seats. We sat in row 23, but actually in a, in a large theater, that, those were actually pretty good seats. And even though we were 23 rows back, we still could see her, but not very well. We're still in her presence, you could maybe say, but we're separated by quite a distance. We weren't really close to her at all. And this is kind of how it was at the temple in Jesus' day. So we're in Matthew 21. We're going to see the temple is kind of similar to a concert or a concert venue, an auditorium or a stadium. So with the temple, there are many, many courts. So think about, think about the temple. This is not completely accurate, but a big rectangle and then smaller rectangles inside of it that were courts. And at the very center is the Holy of Holies. At the very center is the place where Yahweh, the place where God, his presence, lives here on earth among people. So here's, here's a little diagram of the temple, and you see all these courts. So there's one court, there's another court, there's another court. And in, in here, this is the sanctuary. In there, there is a place called the Holy of Holies, where God's presence actually lived so this, this happened for, for, for centuries. 
This is not here anymore, and we're going to talk about what's going on right now because we are after the cross. But so this is the temple. This is what we're going to see today in our passage. And we're going to think about it kind of in terms of like a concert venue. So there's all these different courts. There's all these different seats where people would come if they wanted to worship God. So just like a stadium or just like a theater, there are all different kinds of seats. So there's this uh, standing room only spot, you could say, the very back of the auditorium or stadium, which would be this very outer court. This is called the Gentile court. So if you weren't a Jew, you just wanted to worship the God of the Bible, you could still be, you could still come and worship. But this was the closest you could get to God, is this very outer court, which would be like standing room only at the very back of a concert venue. They could still worship God but they were very, very far from his presence. A little bit closer to God, the next court is called uh, the court of women. So a little bit closer to where God is, but we'd still call these maybe like the cheap seats. They were, they're still in the venue, but they were still very far off from God. The next court was the court of Israel. So that'd be beyond the woman's court up into here through this gate, the court of Israel. And that's where Jewish men could come worship. So we'll call this like the VIP section. They had nearly the best seats in the house. They weren't priests, so they actually couldn't go into the sanctuary. But as Jewish men, they're in the VIP section. They're about as close as they could get. And finally, just outside the Holy of Holies was the sanctuary. So inside here is where priests could go. So they, we'll call this uh, backstage. They had full access to the band. They were hidden from the crowds, and you can only go in there if you're a priest. So they were the closest of anyone who could get to God. So this picture, albeit very flawed, of the temple, it'll help us to set the stage, no pun intended, for our story today. We're going to see how Jesus began to break down all of these barriers that separated people from God. And even more importantly, we're going to see how he's breaking down all these spiritual barriers that are keeping people from meeting and from worshiping God. This morning we're in Matthew 22, verses 12 through 22. It'll be up there on the screen, or it's also in your sermon insert if you want to follow along. Starting in verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned their tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When Jesus' disciples uh, saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, 
Truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask for in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you how we get to see a picture of who you are. We get to see your character. We get to see your passion for your own glory, for your Father's glory, and your passion for tearing down any barrier that will keep people from you, that will keep people from knowing you. Speak to us this morning through your Spirit as we read your words and as we see you both declaring and demonstrating this good news that your kingdom is here. pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So last week, we just saw Jesus enter Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. The, cr- the crowds come out, they wave palm branches, they put their cloaks and palm trees down to make a great like red carpet for him, you could say. And they're yelling out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They think that he's their king. They think that he's their Messiah coming in to overthrow the Romans, these oppressors over them. The majority of Jesus' ministry has taken place in Galilee, which is far away from Jerusalem. But earlier in the story in Luke, he tells us that Jesus set his eyes on Jerusalem. Jesus knew that his mission was to die on the cross for the sins of the world. And he knew that it would take place in Jerusalem. So he sets his face towards Jerusalem because he knows that's where his mission will take place. One of the first things we see today that Jesus does when he enters Jerusalem is that he goes to the temple. So it's Passover. So this city is full of people who have come to celebrate and to worship the Passover in Jerusalem. And when Jesus enters the temple, he sees this bazaar. He sees this marketplace of currency being exchanged and animals and wood and oil being bought. And when the scribes and the chief priests saw Jesus show up and they see what he does, Matthew writes that they became indignant. Commentator Leon Morris helps us understand what made these religious leaders so furious and help us understand what Jesus is proclaiming now through his actions. He writes, it was bad enough, so this is from the religious ruler's perspective, it was bad enough to have the enthusiasm of the crowds at Jesus' entry into the city. But it was worse to have him invade the temple precincts, their own special territory, and destroy a lucrative source of income. And it was intolerable that there, in the temple courts, he was doing miracles and now is being acclaimed by children in messianic terms. So some context for what's going on. So it's Passover time, so many, many Jews from all over the area are coming into Jerusalem to worship and to celebrate the Passover. So if you live far away from Jerusalem, you're not going to be able to bring a bunch of wood and oil and probably a bunch of livestock to make these sacrifices and to worship God over Passover. So especially the people, the foreigners who live far away from Jerusalem, are going to come to Jerusalem and buy what they need to worship God there. And so you see lots of people coming to Jerusalem who need to purchase animals for sacrifices and wood and oil as well. And if you live from a a distant land, you're going to need to come and exchange your currency so that you can buy that kind of stuff. Also, there's the temple tax that people would have to pay as well. 
So if you're coming from Egypt or from a different part of, of uh, the world there, and you have a different currency, you're going to need it to get exchanged. So that's what Jesus is seeing in the temple courts. Describing uh, what is happening at the temple and around Passover, Pastor Mark Driscoll writes, There were various courts that surrounded it, that surrounded the temple, where men and women, Jew and Gentile, would come to meet with God. They would bring their sacrifices so that they could show that because of their sin they should die, but that a substitute would be made and that blood would be shed and that the wrath of God would be satisfied so that their sins might be forgiven and their relationship with God reconciled. And so this was a huge holiday. This was a massive event. So why was Jesus so angry? We saw in our passage today, Jesus is furious. He flips over people's tables. He drives them out of the temple. Can you imagine Jesus doing this? Have you ever pictured that Jesus in your mind? Not just a calm, laid-back, chill teacher that says all these great sayings. But maybe not. Maybe you haven't ever thought of Jesus this way. And you're wondering, how could this peaceful, compassionate Jesus do such a thing? So why? Why was Jesus so angry? Why was he so furious? There's lots of reasons. First one is that these people, they're swindling the Jews, the people who are coming to worship God. Jesus calls them a den of robbers. These people are ripping others off, especially the foreigners. In the book of Mark, another one of the gospel writers talking about this same story, he, he adds this phrase that Jesus says, my house should be called the house of prayer for the nations. And what's going on here is especially for the foreigners, there's all these barriers getting put up. They're getting ripped off by having to exchange their currency, by having to buy all this stuff to come worship God. We see that these uh, religious leaders, they're putting profits above worship. They're hindering people from coming to God, from coming to him and worshiping and praying, all in order to just make a profit. And so not only are they swindling them and ripping them off, we're going to go to this map again. Uh, so in this outer court, which is where we think all this is happening, think about if that is full of people and livestock and animals and commerce and bargaining and negotiating. It's going to make it really, really hard for the Gentiles out here to worship God and for the women in the women court and probably even the men in this court. So they're not only just swindling and ripping people off, making money at their expense, keeping people away from God and saying, you have to pay us money, you have to go through, jump through these hoops in order to get to God. But they're also just keeping people from being able to worship God by this, this crazy commotion. They're making man-made barriers between people and God. Now what's interesting too here is that the scribes and the priests, they don't argue with Jesus. They actually argue with these defenseless children. The money changers and the merchants, they don't fight back, which proves their guilt, which proves that they know that they're in the wrong. I mean, just look at their faces here. You can tell that they're just terrified of Jesus, right? You can tell that they realize that they're in the wrong. And instead of picking on Jesus or responding to Jesus or fighting back, they pick on these defenseless children. So what's, what's, what's going on here in the temple? 
Let me, let me give you like a, a practical, if this was happening today, this is maybe how it would look. So what was going on in the temple would be like if you came to Hiawatha Church. And as you come up the stairs, we have a little money-changing table. And in order to participate into a, a Sunday morning service, to worship God, to gather with his people, to take communion, things like that, you have to pay. And you have to pay with Hiawatha dollars. And it's not a one-to-one. You actually cost $5 to get one Hiawatha dollar. So just by exchanging currency, we're making a lot of money off of you. And after you get your Hiawatha dollars, you come in and you have to rent Bibles. And they cost 25 Hiawatha dollars. And the seats cost money too. The better seats, it's up to you. You can decide. Are the better seats back there or the better seats up front? That's up to you. But the seats, the better seats cost more money. If you're poor and have less money, you're farther away our coffee is the only coffee that you can buy. You can't bring any in, and it costs $27. Communion costs money, too. To pay, with the pre- to pay with the pastor, you have to pay money. And not only all that, but this is the only church. This is the only place that you can actually meet God. Now, obviously, all that is not true. I don't want anyone tweeting some of these things that I just said. <laughs> But that's what's going on. The religious rulers, they're not only taking advantage of people, but they're keeping them from meeting God. They're creating up these man-made barriers that are separating people from coming near and worshiping God. A great question for us to ask, both personally and for us as a church, we need to ask, what are some unnecessary barriers that we're putting up that are keeping people from meeting God? What stumbling blocks are we creating besides the gospel? First Corinthians, Paul writes that the gospel is a great stumbling block to many, that people won't believe just because of the gospel. But what stumbling blocks, what barriers are we putting up that are keeping people from even hearing the gospel, of even trying to come near Jesus? Some things we need to think about are dress. Maybe our dress at church when we gather. If someone comes in looking very different than us, are we still going to welcome them well as a church? Or are they going to feel like an outsider, unaccepted, unwelcomed? Or maybe we have this uh, Christian subculture that if people don't read the same magazines or watch the same movies or listen to the same music or have the same hobbies, that they're going to feel ostracized and left out. Or they think, I have to do all these things in this Christian subculture in order to meet Jesus. Or our language, whether it's bad language, whether it's lack of intellectual language, whether it's a foreign language, are we letting language become a barrier that's keeping people from meeting Jesus? Are we explaining things well rather than using big terms in order that people may understand the gospel? And who cares if we don't look good, look great, and use all these great weighty, large terms. There's also this idea of posture, and it goes both ways. First of all, posture with their behavior. Are we okay with letting sinful people be themselves and not having to clean up before they come to the cross? Or are we letting their sinful behavior keep us from going near them? Are we worried that we're going to catch their sin? Are we worried or just don't want to go around them because they're socially awkward? 
or because they're culturally different. We need to check our hearts and make sure that we're moving towards a lost world and that maybe they're doing things that we don't approve of or that we don't like, but we're not letting their sin be something that keeps us from approaching them and sharing the gospel with them. Obviously, we don't, we're not condoning their sin, but just because my non-Christian friend swears or, or smokes or looks at porn or gambles or all these different things, am I going to let those things offend me so much and scare me so much that I never approach him in order that he might meet Jesus? Are those barriers that we're creating? Or the flip side of this idea of posture is my own. Am I acting so high and mighty and self-righteous and moral and ethic that my non-Christian friends and coworkers and family don't think they can approach me? They think if they talk about what they enjoy or they think that they have to act a certain way to be around me. They think that be- being a Christian is being moral and liking the stuff that I like or doing the stuff that I do. Are we creating that barrier instead of letting the gospel be the only stumbling block? Paul, the great missionary and the great church planter, writes about this, about how he chooses to give up his comfort, his desires, in order that he might reach the lost. He writes in 1 Corinthians 9, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Why? Why is he doing this? That I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And again, he tells us why he does this. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Hi, Walter. We have a great summer coming up. We're going to be commissioning and sending out some more missionaries from our church, sending them to Berlin. We have our our first church plant uh, coming out of Hiawatha also this summer with the Devereaux going to Brooklyn, New York. We have a very exciting summer. And as an example, these are not super Christians, they're just our brothers and sisters, fellow members of Hiawatha. But as an example, the De Bruins and the Devereaux are going to go to a different place. They're going to give up some of their comfort, some of their preferences, some of their desires, some of their energy. Because what's more important than them speaking in a language that's comfortable to them? What's more important than them living in a city that they really want to live in? What's more important to them than having a comfortable life is people meeting Jesus. Back to our passage. In our passage today, we see two different kinds of people. We see the scribes and the priests, and we see the children, the blind, and the lame. And this passage contrasts these two types of people. The scribes and the priests, they're very self-righteous people. They think that God smiles upon them because they're so great. And on the other side, we have the children who are blind, the children and the blind and the lame who are humbled. The, the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests, they're close to God physically. Remember, they can get to the very center of the temple. Whereas the children, the blind, and the lame, they're far from God. 
If you were lame, if you had a disease, you couldn't even go into that court. You couldn't even enter the temple. So they were far, far from God physically. The scribes and the priests, they reject Jesus. When they see Jesus come in in the triumphal entry and then uh, enter the temple and do what he does, including healing all these people, they reject him. In Mark, one of the gospel in one of the other gospel accounts, Mark writes that after this happened, the scribes and the priests, it says that they, they sought out to destroy him after this. Whereas the children, the blind, and the lame, they recognize Jesus as Messiah. We see today that they call out, these little children call out, and they say, Jesus, you are the son of David. You are the Messiah. You are this king who's coming to rescue us. And they receive Jesus. The scribes and the priests, they desire that the worship of God be done in the temple. Whereas the children, the blind, and the lame, they worship at the true temple, the ultimate temple, who is Jesus Christ. And Jesus responds to the scribes and the, and the priests with righteous anger and rebuke. And he responds to the children and the lame and the blind with compassion and healing and closeness. These people who have been far, far, far from God their whole lives, but for a long, long time, Jesus brings them near. He breaks all these social rules and touches them and brings them close. So what's Jesus doing? What is Jesus doing here? What is he showing through his actions? What are the people seeing? What are the people understanding when Jesus goes all WWE on the money changers and the vendors? Four things Jesus is doing. Four main things. First one, he's angered and he's heartbroken by the injustice, by the partiality, and by the abuse of power. He has compassion on those who are being abused Number two, why is Jesus doing this? What is he showing us? He's also breaking down these physical barriers to worshiping God. These barriers of you have to have money. You have to jump through these hoops. You have to go into this uh, court and get your money changed and buy these things in order to get near God. Third thing Jesus is doing, he's rejecting the religious. These people that think because they're Israelites, because they're priests, because they... Uh, do things in the temple, that they're better than other people, that God owes them something. Jesus is rejecting the religious, and he heals, and he touches, and he welcomes the poor, the weak, the sick, and the lowly. The temple rulers and the money changers and the vendors, they're keeping people from God's presence. They're keeping, they're keeping the foreigners the women, the sick, the children, the poor, they're keeping them far away from God's presence. And now Jesus is taking them and bringing them physically close to him. And when he does that, when he brings them physically close to him, they're healed, they're restored. And finally, Jesus is showing in action and in picture that he's greater. He's greater than this temple. And now through him, all those who are far off, those who had no hope of ever coming near God, those who are unclean, those who are Gentiles, those who are separated, those who are sick, those who are diseased, those who are poor, 
will now be brought close to God through Jesus. Earlier in Matthew, Jesus said, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. In John 2, Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus is showing people and showing us today, high off the church, that he's greater than the temple. Pastor Mark Driscoll also writes about this. He says, the temple was a foreshadow of Jesus. It was the place between heaven and earth where God and man would finally connect. But Jesus is the greater temple. He, had, he is God become man. So the presence of God is in Jesus. That's why Paul says that there's only one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. We don't go to a place, we go to a person. The place was just requirements that were held until Jesus came and fulfilled the law, and now we don't need the temple. The temple had the Holy of Holies. Jesus is the Holy of Holies. The temple was the presence of God. Jesus is the presence of God. The temple was where we could go to meet with God. Jesus is where we go to meet with God. The temple is what got us close to God. Jesus is what gets us close to God. The temple is where you'd go to sacrifice and shed blood and have your sins atoned for. Jesus is where we go now to have our sins atoned for and the blood shed and our lives transformed. And the temple was the center of faith and life and worship and God's people would come all to that place. And today, we don't need to go to that place because we go to Jesus. He's the greater temple. The center of our faith is not a place. It's a person. We don't believe in a holy land. We believe in a holy man. The God-man, Jesus Christ. The temple reminded people, and it symbolized their separation from God. It reminded them and showed them that God was holy and they were sinful and not, and they were far, far, far from him. And it required a sacrifice to get closer to God. But even then, that was only just for a time and came at the cost of something dying. Hebrews 9 speaks of how under the law, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But listen to this. But through Jesus, the new temple, and through his sacrifice and his shed blood, people are brought close to God once and for all. There is also this enormous curtain in the temple. You can go to that slide. And it separated the holy place from the holy of holies. So here's a picture of the sanctuary. And behind that curtain was the holy of holies where God's presence actually lived. No one could pass beyond this curtain except one person, the high priest, and only one day of the year on the Day of Atonement. It was a constant reminder, a daily reminder for the priests and for the people of God, that he was holy and they were not, and they were separated from him. But, Matthew later records, after Jesus dies, there's a great earthquake, 
And this curtain, this veil that separated God's presence from the people was torn in two. From the top to the bottom, signifying that our separation from God was finally over through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Let that sink in. The story continues. But now, keep in mind what Jesus just did at the temple. Verse 18, And leaving them, leaving the temple and the people there, Jesus went out of the city to Bethany, and he lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? So we don't have fig trees here. I mean, maybe Steve Wachter probably has a fig tree. He's probably the one guy that, that has a fig tree. If you don't know, he's, uh, he's got like a greenhouse in his backyard, and he's, he's incredible. Anyway, I don't know much about figs. The only thing I know about figs is, fi- is a, a fig newton, and that's obviously <laughs> nothing that's going on here. So I wanted to show you, because most of us don't know what fig trees are, I wanted to show you a picture uh, that will help you better understand what's going on here. So I Googled, and uh, this will kind of make it clear to us. That makes perfect sense now, right? So anyway, a fig, so basically what's going on, a fig tree grows its leaves at the same time that it grows its fruit. So when a fig tree has, fru- when it, when a fig tree has leaves on it, it's a sign that there's also fruit on it. The fruit might not be perfectly ripened, but it's still, it's still edible. So what's going on here is when Jesus comes up to this tree, this fig tree that has leaves, he's expecting, it's obviously going to have fruit on it. Because it doesn't, he's upset. Because when you go to a fig tree and it has leaves on it, there's supposed to be fruit on it. And he uses this as a great example of what just happened in the temple. Jesus is rebuking those who profess to be God's people, but who live unfruitful lives. These religious leaders, these scribes and these priests that profess to be God's people, but they actually don't have any fruit. They're not helping people come closer to God, but they're creating more barriers, more roadblocks, more stumbling blocks that that actually keep people away from God's presence. What Jesus is doing, it's a picture of what we just saw in the temple. The scribes and the chief priests, they're supposed to be not only God's people, but God's mature, loving leaders. The shepherds of God's people, they had leaves. But when Jesus entered the temple, he saw they had no fruit at all. This is a great reminder for all of us here in this building, and it should scare some of us. Some of us might think we're Christians because we come to church, because we have Christian friends, because we know the Bible. And all those things are fruit of someone who is a Christian, someone who does put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. But those things do not make you a Christian. Let me share an example of this. We have a guy in our church, his name is John. He started attending in January. 
and he got baptized in Easter. Many of you were here and were able to hear his story about how God chased him down and pursued him and saved him. John grew up going to church his whole life. He knew the Bible. He knew Christianity. He even knew some theology. He had attended Bible studies and small groups. He had Christian friends. But after years and years of this, he realized that he wasn't a Christian. He had never repented of his sins or put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He went through the motions on the outside, and many would even look at him and say he was a Christian. But he was a tree full of leaves, yet without spiritual fruit. This is what Jesus is warning us about. Fig trees with leaves, but no fruit. Religious people who instead of helping people meet Jesus and come to God, instead put up barriers and separation. People who call themselves Christians but don't personally know Jesus and have no spiritual fruit in their lives. Now listen very carefully. I'm not saying that we have to be perfect. And I'm not saying what we do makes us saved. But what Jesus is saying in this passage and to us as a church is that temple attendance, like these scribes and priests are doing, or church attendance for us, knowing the Bible well. These guys knew the Bible really well. They were the religious leaders. Most of them had it memorized. And not just playing the part, none of that saves you, just like we saw in our story. The only thing that saves us is faith and belief in Jesus Christ. John realized this. And praise Jesus, he's with us here this morning. God has saved him, and he, he has been given much spiritual fruit. We're going to finish up with our passage. Jesus now responds to the astonishment that the disciples have after this Lego tree turned black. And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So this phrase, moving a mountain, we've seen this before in Matthew. This phrase, moving a mountain, is a Jewish, it's a symbolic metaphor that means doing something that's impossible, which obviously someone picking up a mountain and throwing it into into the sea could not happen. Even Yoda with his great, you know, force powers could not, could not even do that. So moving a mountain, Jesus is saying, if you have faith, the impossible will now become possible. Jesus is saying, you just saw a little miracle. You just saw this tree get cursed and wither. But what you'll be able to do is the impossible. If you have faith in me, if you have trust in me, what was once humanly impossible will now be possible. Early in Matthew, Jesus taught about salvation, and his disciples freak out. They say, well, when, Jesus, or sorry, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, and they said, well, then who can be saved? Jesus, who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them, and he said, with man, it is impossible. With man, salvation is impossible. There's not a period there. There's a comma there. But with God, all things are possible. Salvation is and was humanly impossible. 
But through faith in Jesus' death and resurrection for our sins on our behalf, through that, the impossible is now made possible. Now the untouchables, the rejected, the lame and the blind, the poor, the people who are far and distant from God are now able to come near God. The impossible. Salvation and reconciliation have now come through Jesus. And Jesus ends now uh, letting his disciples see this and then teaching them. He ends by telling them to pray boldly. Because of what you just saw, because you know my character, because of what I just taught you, pray boldly. So both to the disciples and to us as a church. Now, because we know Jesus' great love and his great compassion for those on the fringes of society, for the untouchables, for those who are far from God, for us who, apart from Jesus, before Jesus, were those people who were far from God, who were enemies of God, because we know of Jesus' great love and compassion, he tells us, pray boldly for the salvation of those who are still far from him. Pray knowing that he both can come near them, and when he does, he will heal them and give them salvation. Pray remembering Jesus' barrier-destroying pursuit of the least in that society. Jesus' barrier-destroying pursuit of those who were separated from him and had no hope. As we leave here today, I want us to remember that we are not reconciled. We're not brought near God by anything we do. We are brought near God only through Jesus, just like we saw in this story today. We are not brought near God, his presence, the Holy of Holies, through our own heritage. These Jews, these, these leaders, thought because I'm a Jew, because I'm a Levite, because I'm a priest, I'm near God. And for us, that can be our own Christian heritage. I grew up in a church. I went to VBS. I went to church camp. I went to youth group. So I must be a Christian. I must be close to God because of my Christian heritage. We're not brought near through our Christian heritage. We're not brought near to God solely through our worship or through our sacrifice, or through anything we do. But we are brought near to God solely through Jesus Christ, the true temple, the true high priest, the true sacrifice, the one who fulfilled all those things. And because of that, our response to that is a new life and a spiritual fruit. Second thing I want us to remember as we leave and ask ourselves personally, ask this with your community group, with your friends, with your family. What stumbling blocks are we creating that are keeping people from Jesus? Unnecessary things that we're putting up that we're saying, to be a Christian, you must do this first. You must clean yourself up. You must not do this. You must be a moral person. You must be this smart. You must speak this language. You must act like this. What barriers are we putting up that are keeping our lost neighbors, friends, family, coworkers from meeting Jesus? Let that be our prayer this week. Holy Spirit, what am I putting between people and them meeting you? The gospel is a big enough stumbling block already. And it's the only stumbling block that we're called to allow.
And finally, most of us, if not all of us, are going to fall into these two camps. If you see yourself as one of the religious, one of the self-righteous, I grew up in a church, I grew up in a Christian family, I'm a really good moral, ethical person, God should be really happy with me, he should be happy that I'm on his team because I'm doing a lot of good stuff, I serve a lot, I know a lot. If you're the religious and self-righteous, be humbled. Look at Jesus' response to the people that think that Jesus really need him or think that their works are what are getting them close to God. Look how Jesus responds to them. Be humbled. Remember John's story, that you can be a tree that has leaves but has no fruit. So if that is you, come to Jesus for repentance and for his righteousness given to you as his adopted child, leaving your own good works good works at the door. So even though I came over here, you're not necessarily the, the self-righteous crowd. Or if you are the lame, the blind, the rejected, the unimpressive, whether it's physically or spiritually, if that's you, also look to Jesus and see how he responds. See how he welcomes you. See how you are and maybe you have felt this your whole life, that no one really would love you if they knew who you were. Or you felt far from God because of your sin, because of your lack of something, your lack of knowledge, your lack of experience, your lack of faith, whatever it might be. You think that you are far, far from God. But look at what Jesus does. Look at what Jesus does. He welcomes the people he's not supposed to welcome. And he doesn't just say, I love you. You stay back there because you got a disease or because you smell or because you're socially awkward and I'll do a little healing bomb I'll toss over and it'll get you. But he brings them close. He touches them and he heals them and they're restored. And through that, he's showing that now who, the people who were once far away from God can finally be brought near God through Jesus, through what he's going to do and accomplish on the cross. Let's pray. God, we have, and I am, struggle with both of those. Being someone far off and thinking that you could never love or forgive or come near me. And at times I'm the self-righteous and we are the self-righteous that think, God, you should be impressed with us. You need us because our works are so great. God, we pray that you would change our hearts. And we thank you, thank you that you did not keep us far and separated and distant from you. We were actually turned around and running away from you, wanting to get far away from you. But you chased us down, you pursued us with loving compassion and patience, and you saved us. We thank you for that. Spirit, speak to us this morning. Remind us of who we are in Christ Help us to see the barriers that we're placing that are keeping people from you. Pray this all in your name, Jesus, through the power of your spirit and for your Father's glory. Amen. We're about to enter now into a time of the Lord's Supper or communion. Before Jesus died, he brought his, his closest 12 disciples and he said, do this whenever you gather, to remember me, to remember what I'm going to do. Sometimes we call this the Lord's Supper. It has another name, 
called communion. Now, through what Jesus did on the cross in our behalf, we can now have communion with God. We can now have community. We can now be brought close. We can now commune with our God instead of being his enemy. So as we are taking the bread this morning, as we are drinking a glass of juice or wine, remembering what Jesus did, thank God that you are brought near. If you have put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, you can now have communion with Jesus. You can have a communion with God the Father. You're no longer an outcast. You're no longer an enemy, but you're brought close. You're his adopted son or daughter. At Hiawatha, we practice something called open communion, which just means that you just have to be a, a true follower and believer in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You don't have to be a member of Hiawatha Church or any church, but we just ask that you be a true believer. The way uh, it's going to look is the band's going to come up in just a few minutes and play through a set of four songs. Anytime during those four songs, uh, you can come on down through the center aisle, break off a piece of bread, pour yourself a glass. There's uh, labels here for grape juice and wine. And you can have communion. You can remember the death and resurrection of Jesus that brought you connection with him, that brought you communion with him. You can do it in the front row. You can go back. Uh, you can do it right up here, wherever you want. There'll also be people up here uh, 